0: Plant the Rain and Grow Abundance Brad Lancaster's award-winning book series, Rainwater Harvesting for Drylands and Beyond, will show you how. His books are the go-to guides for conceptualizing, designing, and implementing water harvesting systems for your home, landscape, and community. Their grounding and dynamically integrated strategies will teach you new ways of seeing and maximizing your site's potential. By harvesting and enhancing free, on-site resources from water to sun, wind, shade, soil fertility, and beyond. Highly illustrated and full of case studies and stories of people successfully welcoming rain, and more, into their lives and landscapes, these books invite, inspire, and guide you to do the same. More info at HarvestingRainwater.com This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann and you're listening to episode 1723, Change Here Now. As we begin, a reminder of the Summer to Fall Fundraiser. In cooperation with our friends at Verde Energia Pacifica, as part of that campaign we're partnering to give away another permaculture design course in Costa Rica. Find out more at thepermaculturepodcast.com permaculturepodcastcom Costa Rica, or by the link to that or the fundraiser in the show notes. How do we create a world with the social and economic structures we desire? How do we distill down the problems that we see over and over again so that they're easy to understand while also creating solutions with universal application one way to do that is by creating a pattern language an idea first coined in 1977 by christopher alexander in the book a pattern language towns buildings construction my guest today adam brock took that lens originally applied to architecture and structures And used it to examine our invisible structures, which resulted in his book, Change Here Now, Permaculture Solutions for Personal and Community Transformation. During the conversation today, we talk about the development of the book and some of his process on going from concept to published manuscript, which builds on some things that Adam and I talked about the first time that he appeared on the podcast. We also touch on some of the challenging conversations that arise from looking broadly at how to apply permaculture and these patterns to our communities, and our personal lives, that includes some of the conversations we should consider engaging in as neighbors, leaders, friends, and family. Of course, we close this interview with Adam's final thoughts, but not before he shares some of the patterns he developed, including dynamic pricing and nurtured networks. Enjoy this conversation with Adam, and I'll join you again afterward. Well, Adam, I'd like to thank you for joining me again to sit down and have another conversation. You're now one of the frequent guests who have appeared on the show more than two or three times. And I'm glad to have you back again to talk about your new book, Change Here Now. My understanding from looking at the book and some of the conversations we've had along the way is that this builds on your earlier work that actually formed our first interview back in 2013 about invisible structures. So I was wondering if you might speak with me about how things have changed and grown from those early days, nearly half a decade ago, when you were building this idea of an invisible structure pattern language to the book, Change Here Now.
1: Yeah, uh, I'd love to. And and first off, I just want to thank you, Scott, for having me back. It's It's definitely, as an avid listener of your show, it's an honor to be one of those frequent guests and to be able to check in from time to time and, and share my updates uh, with you and, and your listeners. So yeah, it, it has been uh, quite an exciting journey over the last four years from, you know, kind of, I think I shared a Prezi with you at that time that was just a, a bunch of names of patterns in a kind of mind map format. And uh, that, that's how I had it structured at that point. And, and now, you know, there's this book that looks real and, and people can hold in their hands and is 400 pages or something crazy like that. And so it's it's been an amazing journey. You know, uh, at the 2013 International Permaculture Convergence in Cuba, I had the opportunity to share that pattern language with a lot of the folks there and uh, was encouraged at that point to turn it into a book uh, by Eric Tonsmeyer, who, as you know, is an amazing practitioner as well as author and, and is very familiar with the publishing process. And he says, you know, this is something that there's not enough books about these days and, and you should document your ideas. And I I'd never really thought about it at that point in book form. But the more I did think about it, the more I said, well, why not? I might as well try it. So I put a book proposal together, sent it to a few publishers, and uh, lo and behold, North Atlantic Books, which uh, I've come to learn is a really wonderful publisher that, you know, does works by Vandana Shiva and Charles Eisenstein and the Dalai Lama, um, was really interested. And so after that, it was kind of off and running, no turning back. And so... I kind of dove in and ran a crowdfunding campaign where I was able to raise about seven thousand dollars, and that allowed me to hire uh, some research assistants and a fantastic illustrator. And from there, it was you know a good year and a half of uh, researching, writing, organizing, reorganizing, rewriting to get it to the point where it is now. And you know, one of the things that I'll share is I gave up pretty early the notion that this would be a comprehensive pattern language. You know, I think I started out, as I'm guessing many authors do, with these uh, grand notions of what I could accomplish. And, you know, maybe if I had worked on it for another five years, ten years, I could have made something a little bit more comprehensive. But but the truth is, you know, like any language, like English or Japanese or mathematics, for that matter, it's never complete. And I think I started to, to realize that pretty early on and that it could only be a product of my limited experience, my limited ways of seeing the world, and that my highest hopes for this book are for people to add to it, for people to see the gaps and contribute to, to this emerging discourse of social permaculture in the pattern form. Because, you know, I, I think I've, I've laid out some patterns that I think are useful, and I look forward to seeing how they're internalized and digested in different communities and, and hopefully added to. So, yeah, that's been the journey for me and and I'll you know, it's it's just a, a tremendous joy to see all of this thinking, which is really, you know, even more than four years I've been working on this stuff and thinking and teaching about it for almost a decade now, to see it in book form to finally have it in a way that people can digest and and learn from. So, yeah, it's it's exciting to be at this point.
0: It's interesting for me to see so many pattern languages emerging within the conversation about permaculture and to see how, broad they are just before we got together to record this interview i had another conversation with david holmgren which was recently released and as part of that he was talking about his new book retro suburbia and approaching that as a pattern language and from my own practices and work in teaching permaculture to others i'm really fascinated by pattern language because i find that they kind of fill a role between the principles of permaculture and then the on the ground techniques A lot of times I refer to them as the strategies of permaculture, but they could easily be just an ongoing pattern language within each of these different disciplines from the landscape to the suburban and the other invisible structures that we face. Is that something that you're using within your teachings of permaculture, that you're integrating pattern languages into that? And if so, where is that kind of stuff fitting?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Scott. And, And, you know, I think many folks who are drawn to permaculture end up getting drawn to pattern languages as well, or, you know, maybe sometimes even vice versa, because I think they're both about approaching problems in a systemic, flexible, and holistic way. And, you know, permaculture has that kind of ethical embeddedness and connection to ecology and ecosystems um, and the framework of principles, like you talked about in the design process. And then pattern language, I think, complements it really well, in terms of filling in the gaps of, okay, we have these grandiose ideas, we have these ideals, but how do we not fall into the trap of thinking that every permaculture site needs to have a chicken tractor and an herb spiral and a food forest and all the you know specific iterations we see of that design process. And so what pattern languages do is it provides us with this menu, and, and I think you're right on in, in calling them strategies, of what can be done and with the recognition that no pattern is applicable in every context, and every pattern is fuzzy at the edges. And so, yeah, I, I use patterns all the time in my, both in my design practice and my teaching practice. And, you know, the, actually the, the book emerged from the way I prefer to teach, which is in these patterns. So, you know, what, what I offer to my students is, you know, as I go through sharing the information uh, of the different sections of a PDC or a workshop or course, I'll try and highlight this is one strategy, this is one pattern that you want to add to your tool belt. And now I've actually taken to giving students uh, like a pack of note cards at the beginning of a course. And as we go through the course, having them fill out basically kind of flashcard style. Every time I introduce a new pattern, they'll write the name on one side and then whatever notes or thoughts they have about that pattern on the other. And then when it comes time to start actually designing, they literally have this stack of cards that they can move around and pick and choose from and sometimes even literally place on a base map if that's appropriate to help think about how to apply these different strategies in different ways. And so that, you know, it's, it's just another tool like a zone and sector analysis, like any of the other tools we use in permaculture to help us take a ton of information that, that we're absorbing and pattern it and organize it in a way that that helps us filter the right information helps us filter the signal from the noise to pick out just those elements that will harmonize our elements into a whole
0: and looking through what you've provided in change here now it looks like there are if i've got my count right 74 patterns and eight design tools that you provide that's quite a lot of information how did you arrive at these were there as you developed some of them did you create new patterns as you were going along And I can only imagine that you had to prune quite a bit to get exactly what you were looking for in this book. So is there like a notebook full of additional patterns and thoughts that you have somewhere?
1: Yeah, that's right on. A notebook and spreadsheets and various mind maps scattered throughout file folders. Yeah, so it's definitely developing a pattern language as I learn pretty quickly. It's a never-ending task. You know, there were lots of decision points where I had to choose, like you mentioned, to prune patterns that either I didn't feel like I had enough expertise with to write about, or that felt just a little bit peripheral to the themes of the book. You know, I I realized that there's whole realms of social permaculture or invisible structure that I just didn't feel like I could get into in, in this book. You know, things like education. I think there's an entire book that could be written that would be a pattern language of how to transmit knowledge from one person to another using permaculture and and ecological thinking. And that's just, you know, for another book for someone else to write. And then there were times where, you know, originally, for example, I was going to have a separate pattern for each form of capital, right? So natural capital would be a pattern and social capital and material capital. And, you know, I had a number of great conversations with some of my mentors, folks like uh, Peter Bain and Dave Jackie, that really helped me refine, okay, well, what do we really mean by pattern here? And is natural capital in itself a solution, or is it part of a different real solution or strategy, which is something like commoning, creating commons, creating systems that are managed by the people that use them instead of the market or uh, the government. And then natural capital is what we're restoring, what we're creating through commoning. So yeah, there's a lot of kind of rearranging, reorganizing, and also in terms of deciding how to order the patterns. That was really challenging for me, right? Because these things are so networked when you're talking about social permaculture, how to decide what is the quote-unquote biggest pattern versus the smallest pattern. I ended up dividing it into five overall themes. So the first one is is the kind of philosophical stuff, the the really long-term thinking, attitudinal things. The second part is, I call, patterns of justice and resistance, then the third part goes into organizational design, the fourth part is about economics, and the fifth part is about self-care. And, you know, hopefully that works and that makes sense to readers, but, you know, I'll be the first to say that that's still somewhat arbitrary. I think I could have sliced and diced it a number of other ways, and, and it would have worked out just as well, because ultimately a pattern language is, by its nature, non-linear, right? You're, you're supposed to kind of bounce back and forth between these things. So. I decided to present it in one specific linear way but there's a bunch of other ways that one could engage with it.
0: And looking at this in the way that you divided this into different sections, it also doesn't feel like any given pattern is necessarily firmly rooted or required to be in that section. It's just a way to approach organizing this information into something that kind of flows. That You could easily take something like visioning for a permanent culture and that idea of the long game pattern could also apply to the self and the way that we're taking care of ourselves and looking to the future.
1: Yeah, you bet. And, you know, certainly, especially in that first section, you know, there's patterns in there that are very much about economics or patterns very much about justice. And in some of the other sections, there's just lots and lots of overlaps. So, you know, at a certain point, you just have to kind of put a boundary around something and say, this is good enough. But my hope is that, you know, like I said earlier, that people recognize the substantial overlaps between them and start to kind of come up with their own way of organizing and framing this information that makes sense for them. So even
0: though you've got this giant, nearly comprehensive book in some ways at 400 pages to introduce and outline your ideas, it's still really just a start that you'd like people to use as kind of a toolkit to build upon and pull out the pieces that work for them, add their own to it, and use it to really create the change that they want to see.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I have no doubt that, you know, depending on who's picking up this book, there's going to be vast sections of it that are irrelevant to them. I deliberately designed it to be as flexible as possible for someone to be able to make use out of it, even if they're not interested in gardening, even if they've never heard of permaculture. So, you know, I had several different almost characters in mind as I was writing it. And, one person is certainly you know, folks who are graduates of PDCs and, and interested in making their designs more comprehensive in terms of incorporating invisible structures. But then there's also, you know, say someone who comes from a social justice background and is maybe a community organizer um, and wants to learn how to be more effective in their organizing work by involving historical models or involving patterns from nature. There's uh, maybe a social entrepreneur who wants to make the world a better place and sees a nonprofit or a business as a vehicle for doing that and wants to know how how do i create this organization in a way that is non-hierarchical that listens to everybody's that's led by community members and that generates its own income and then there's someone who is you know maybe not even ready to identify with any of those labels who is just someone seeking change who knows that the world they live in is not right who who rejects the narrative that consumerism and capitalism that, that surrounds us and is just looking for something to, you know, latch on And so, you know, hopefully there's something for everybody, but I have no illusions that everything in here is relevant to everybody. It's just a whole lot, Adam. Yeah, I know. And even for, for me, it's it's overwhelming to, to even flip through it after years of engaging with it. So, you know, what I tell people is I don't recommend reading it cover to cover. It's almost a good, you know, bathroom book in the sense that you can just pick it up, flip to a random pattern, read it, it's, you know, two, three pages long, see what inspiration that strikes in you and, you know, either close the book and do something with it or see what other patterns that's related to, turn to that chapter and and see where that goes and, and, you know, just kind of let it sink in one little bite-sized chunk at a time and to not try and take it all in in one week or one month or even a year.
0: Your book and David Fleming's Lean Logic that was edited by Sean Chamberlain are two that really fall into that category for me that have come out recently, where there's something that you can pick them up, read a single entry, and then walk away and have something to contemplate for a while. They remind me a bit of like a Zen Cohen where we're taking in something that seems rather simple or apparent sometimes, but the implications of understanding that idea fully can really have a fundamental change on the way that we approach our work and what it is that we're doing. There's just so much good information packed into these little ideas, just a few pages here or a couple of paragraphs there. Yeah,
1: that was the hope, definitely.
0: One of the things that I like about being able to pick up and kind of just take in a little piece is that it makes it a lot less intimidating than trying to read it cover to cover and to take in everything all at once. It makes it approachable for anyone, as you outlined for us. The audience can range from somebody who has no idea about permaculture or any of these practices or pattern languages or any of it all the way through to someone who's very well steeped in this idea and has a background say in systems thinking and systems theory, computer science, permaculture, and all of that. It really does strike a balance from the beginner to the expert. And I'm wondering how hard was it to find that? and to write to that level. Was that something that your editors worked with? Or were those your readers as you were sending out early
1: drafts? I think it was a little bit of both. You know, again, the folks at North Atlantic were, were really great and helpful in, in helping me think about that audience and refine it. You know, it, it definitely, in, early on in the writing process, I think the hardest part was finding what voice I wanted to use. You know, how how academic and rigorous did I want to be in terms of citing sources? how much slang should I use, you know, because I think I can write in a lot of different ways to speak to different people, but when when that audience is so broad and un- unknown sometimes, it was hard to settle on that, and eventually I think I, I struck a balance. But even so, you know, I recognize that to speak to some of these patterns, for example, like decolonization, just the very framework that I'm approaching here of a 400-page book that's in this format called a pattern language that can be kind of esoteric to people, you know, some of the words I use, it's going to make it challenging for some people to dig into. Um, and sometimes the people that could really use this, these solutions the most, might find a book like this pretty challenging. Um, and so I kind of made peace with that uh, as I was writing it and, and recognized that, you know, of course, this isn't the only way of transmitting this information. And part of what I'm really thrilled about now is, you know, now that there is this information in book form i'm excited to explore it in workshop form and in i'm actually thinking of printing up a deck of cards that i'm going to sell that people can just buy the deck of cards and and that can be a a little bit of a less intimidating on-ramp to this pattern language where they can just flip through the deck and read a sentence or two at a time and then if they really want to take the deep dive they can buy the book
0: You mentioned decolonizing there, and I'm sure that some of these patterns that you chose to include are parts of difficult conversations, and I was wondering why you included those, and if in doing so there were some patterns that you decided to leave out because they would have been too challenging of a conversation to have at this point to introduce this material.
1: I don't think I left out any patterns for the sake of not challenging my readers, because I think you know, I think we all need to be pushed in many different directions to, in order to build the world that, that we all believe is, is necessary and possible. There, there were ones I left out because I just didn't feel like I was the right person to speak to them or that I had enough experience or knowledge or wisdom to really document it in pattern form. And, and I actually thought about reaching out to other folks to write guest patterns at one point, but as these things go, it just started to become a little bit too much. But yeah, I mean, specifically around issues of, you know, race and and class and and other forms of uh, oppression, you know, I didn't feel like I could write this without giving some form of attention to those, because I think for good reason, that's become so central to our conversation and to our understanding of progress. And at the same time, as someone who holds a lot of those privileges myself, I recognized I, I could only write it from that perspective and from the really helpful and valuable conversations I've learned from my peers who, who have helped uh, enlighten me in, in lots of ways, but still knowing that, you know, I'm figuring this out as I go along, too, and, and all I can do is, is put it down as best I can, knowing that it's not going to be perfect, but also knowing that it still needs to be said.
0: Well, I appreciate that answer and that you're doing this work. and digging into some of these issues because there are a lot of the conversations that I'm having behind the scenes with folks within the permaculture community is how we can push against those edges that are uncomfortable and hard. The landscape in many ways is kind of easy, but the social setting is... It can be difficult and very challenging because of the vulnerability that we have to express to step into those circles and the pieces of ourselves that we kind of have to wash away or be open to changing in order to move this conversation and this movement forward?
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the most personal patterns in the book speaks to, you know, an experience I had last year, right after kind of the the shootings of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile, where, you know, it was just like another series of these people of color dying at the hands of police officers. and, And I knew I was supposed to care, but was having trouble mustering up the like, you know, rage within myself after these things happening again and again, and then that night, or the night afterwards, someone broke into our house, and we were gone, but, you know, they, like, threw a window through our back glass door, and stole some jewelry, and it, you know, it wasn't anything huge, but it still, I felt like it kind of shattered that wall of complacency or privilege that I'm able to build around myself as someone who has a salary, and someone who, um, has a lot of the basic comforts that people, you know, even living down the street from me don't have. And in shattering that wall, it it opened me up to the pain that so many people are experiencing in our culture today. And it allowed me to grieve for not only my own, you know, unfortunate circumstances, but for those of so many other people around me. And the lesson it taught me was that we can't shy away from things just because they're painful. We can't afford to build up walls that make us feel happy on a personal level, just so we don't have to face the hard realities that are happening around us. We need to be vulnerable ourselves. We need to open ourselves up to that pain so that we can all heal. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just think that, again, it's a process that I continue to struggle with and negotiate. And honestly, there's some times where I feel like I need to push back against the arguments that are being made. For example, you hear a lot these days that, permaculture is a complete appropriation and repackaging of indigenous wisdom. Um, And that's something that that I don't 100% agree with. You know, I do agree that permaculture has not given credit where credit is due to indigenous practices, that it is not doing as much as it could or should to benefit indigenous people and indigenous sovereignty. But I also know that there's a lot that Westerners and Western science has added to the permaculture discourse that makes it what it is, and that it's not merely uh, stealing from indigenous cultures and calling it something else. So I think, you know, again, I think it, we need to all be open to engaging in dialogue about this stuff and not just accepting anything at face value, whether it is something written by Mollison that we think is the, a holy scripture or something from somebody approaching it from a social justice angle that we unquestionably accept out of a sense of guilt or shame.
0: There's so much in there that I would love to unpack if we had like six more hours. When I was interviewing David again, I posted to some of my friends who follow my work that I love the work that I do because I'm sitting down to interview one of the founders of the modern permaculture movement. And I said that specifically because of being aware of all of the indigenous practices that have become a part of this movement and knowing that there's a bit of that question about what language we use and being able to appropriately pay homage and honor the different diverse cultures where this information comes from Uh while also trying to understand within these conversations like where is the monolith from which these cultures descend if there is any Mm -hmm. Because of, you know, cross-cultural pollination and conversation where things are shared and where things are being appropriated. And again, you know, I'm I'm an educated white middle class guy whose only view of struggle is class struggle. So some of this is still something that I'm personally trying to work through. But there's just so much there to be talked about within our community as we develop new ideas and new patterns and new languages about how to practice beyond the landscape in particular as we're learning about different forms of restorative justice, which is a modern label for different kinds of community practices and things like that.
1: Yeah, one of the uh, just, you know, when, when I myself get lost in these kind of thoughts, which I think it's very easy to do and, and to, you know, second guess yourself and things like that, one of the nuggets of wisdom that That I come back to time and time again is something from Starhawk, who was a huge influence for me in writing this book. In her empowerment manual, she writes that appropriation is taking from the ancestors without a commitment to giving back to the children. And I find that a really good kind of just guidepost of is the work that I'm doing or someone else is doing, is it cultural appropriation? Well, it is if you're not making a commitment to give back in some way to the culture that you're taking, drawing something from. And by that yardstick, I think many permaculturalists, you know, should be doing more giving back. And it's something that I've been working on myself uh, in my own community. In what ways can I give my time, my money, which is a huge one for me, or anything else, my knowledge, to the communities that are both often the communities that developed a lot of this wisdom in the first place and are often most impacted that are on the front lines of gentrification and, and other manifestations of colonialism. Could you give us some examples from your personal life of what you're doing to do that? Yeah, you bet. So, you know, there's some really great conversations I've been having with people of color in the permaculture community here in Denver about the fact that people who are seen as leaders in the community are always asking people to to come and show up to their events or take their course or things like that. But then when there are people, often people of color or low-income folks, who have a lot of great hard skills but maybe don't have the reputation or don't have the you know, social media expertise of someone who has a college education, when they have something go on, when they're doing a work day in their yard and nobody shows up, it's the responsibility of those people who are leaders and people who do have a little bit more of a megaphone, so to speak, to A, show up themselves, um, because that's just walking the talk, and B, to raise up their voice, to say, hey, there's this amazing project going on in this food desert neighborhood by this person who you might not have heard of, but is just has their hands in the ground and really knows what they're doing. So let's all go and support them. That kind of work going out of our way to highlight that stuff that's maybe flying under the radar by marginalized communities is one of my responsibilities, I think. And then also, you know, like I said, with money, you know, it's, it's this really tricky thing when especially if you're coming from middle class, or upper middle class background, and your expectations are that you should have a salary and, and be saving money for retirement or, you know, being able to buy a home or whatever it is, to square that with the recognition that if you're in a position to have surplus income at all, you're doing better than probably half, maybe even more of our society. And that in that third ethic, sharing the surplus, you can probably afford to contribute more of it than you think to uh, causes and organizations that really need it. So, you know, I've been pushing myself harder than I, and than I had in the past to donate to things like Standing Rock, to GoFundMe campaigns for people that lost their house in a fire or getting evicted, things like that. And, and the truth is, you know, you never miss that money once it's gone. You never think, oh, man, I, I really should have only donated $20 instead of $50 to that person's campaign. Nobody ever looks back and says that, even if you're struggling yourself financially, because. The way that works is, is the more you give, the more it, it comes back to you in return. And that's just something that the way our economic system is set up, we're, we're supposed to not remember. But, you know, I'm, I'm trying to recall it.
0: And I also think of many of those practices are like a muscle. The more that we exercise it, the stronger it grows. And that it becomes a more natural part of our process the more that we engage with communities that we might not normally have a connection to because of our socioeconomic background or education or geographic location, that the more that we reach out and speak with other people and spend time in our communities, the easier it is to be aware of those other classes that are happening, those garden installs that we might not have heard of otherwise by kind of putting our ear to the ground and being a a real part of the community. Then those of us who are in positions to do so can lend more of our leadership or power to those people. But I also think of it, though, of making sure that we ask before doing so to make sure that we are being an ally to that effort rather than being a detriment or continuing some of these ideas of colonization or I have an idea. So that makes me right.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really great point, Scott, and I'm I'm glad you brought that up, because I think something that it's easy to fall back into is that savior complex, like, oh, look, I'm like a white guy and have all this power, so I'm going to share it and help all you other people by spreading knowledge, and and yeah, that can very easily lapse into perpetuating discourses of colonialism. So, you know, it's something we need to be mindful of, and also, you know, like I said earlier, what I've learned is that we can't allow that second-guessing or guilt or fear of doing the wrong thing hold us back from acting, because that's also just as harmful to us and to uh, marginalized communities. You know, So we have to just dive in, like you said, and put our ear to the ground and engage in these communities, knowing that sometimes we're going to mess up and hoping that the folks who we're working with let us know and let us know in a respectful way and that we learn from our mistakes and, and that you know, I, I've been inspired by this Nelson Mandela quote, recently that I think he said, I never lose. I either win or learn. And I think, you know, applying that mentality to our work uh, as allies is is pretty important.
0: I really appreciate that you've taken some of my garden path questions and really run with them and gone to explore some of these things. But I would like to take us back a bit more towards your book and some of the patterns. And I was just wondering if you might share a couple of your favorite patterns. I'm sure that you love all of them or you wouldn't have put them into your book. But some that stand out to you from either maybe some classes that you've taught, that you've gotten some feedback on that were really useful, or just some that you personally really enjoy.
1: Yeah, sure. And yeah, like you suggest, I could probably dive in at at any point and and come up with something valuable. But, you know, one of the ones that I, I like to talk about in almost all of my workshops is a pattern I call the edge of change. And as you know, in permaculture, we talk a lot about edges and that edges are a really valuable place of, of interchange between two different forms of matter or energy, two different elements, two different systems. And so I use that idea and, and build upon that idea in, in looking at the edge between our own personal vision, the, you know our, our part of the world that, that we want to create, the edge between that and what is currently acceptable within a given community. Um, there's a term in political science called the Overton Window which is you know, basically the realm of ideas considered acceptable to talk about within a given discourse, and seeing where is it that there is overlap, and sometimes that overlap is really, really slim, between what the perfect world that I see in my head is and what people are talking about in my neighborhood or in, in public policy or you know, whatever community you're trying to make change in. And really trying to focus your efforts as much as possible in that narrow area with, with the goal eventually, obviously, of widening that kind of zone in the Venn diagram where the two circles intersect. Um, so that you're pulling more and more of the Overton window, what's considered you know, acceptable to talk about, more into your realm of the world you see possible. But starting where there is that overlap. Because what happens otherwise is you could either be in the middle of your own circle of your personal vision... And, you know, building out this world that, that you really love, but nobody's listening to you because they see you as fringe or kooky or whatever. Or you could be so far to the other side in the realm of what's considered acceptable, but that's outside of your own vision that you're not being true to yourself. And you feel like you're just, you know, kind of a gear in a machine and, and just following the path that, that society has laid out for you. And those are two things, you know, two arcs of the pendulum that I think we all swing back between. But ideally, the edge of change reminds us to always try and position ourselves in that overlap, however small it might be.
0: For my own personal journey, I'm really glad to hear that because I think that's one of the spaces for a lot of permaculture practitioners is trying to exist in a comfortable space between the work that we feel needs to get done and then what society is accepting of or allowing for when it comes to change can really push us to one side or the other and leave a bit of despondency or almost a a mild existential crisis in knowing how important this work is, but not always being able to see it into the world or going out and being a part of the world and perhaps drawing that salary so that one is safe and secure, but then not having the time to do the good work. And that pattern gives us a place where we can work on finding a better balance between those two, to still be true to ourself as well as to the needs of our community.
1: Yeah, that's the idea. And maybe just to, you know, that's that's one pattern that's a little bit more about self-care, it's a little bit philosophical. I can share another pattern that's coming at it from a, a very specific, tangible direction, and that's one of uh, dynamic pricing. So this is one in the, in the ec- economic section of the book, where it's talking about if you are charging for something, whether that is a product or food that you're growing or a class you're teaching, whatever it is, that there's this idea, there's this myth that you need to set one price and charge that one price only, but that, you know, experience and and just a little bit of research from looking at cultures around the world and our own culture more than 125 years ago shows that very rarely is there one set price for any given good or service that it's expected that that price will vary a lot based on who is purchasing that good or service. And so in that pattern, I lay out a number of different ways to kind of create that matrix or scale rather than assuming it has to be one point. And so you can have pay what you can options. You could have sliding scale. You could have scholarships. You could, um, you know, like in in old school marketplaces, you could do haggling and bargaining if if that seems appropriate. Um, But either way, recognizing that very rarely is there actually one best price for everybody and that uh, you just need to create the right set of incentives, the right framework so that the people with means perhaps can pay more, but then you charge less for the people who need it just as much but can't afford it. Um, maybe you give discounts for people in your local community to incentivize relocalization and then charge more for outsiders. You know, There's any number of reasons why you might want to charge different prices, but just recognizing that that's an option, and there's lots of skillful ways of doing that. That's a very tangible, you know, kind of almost quantifiable pattern that's in the economics section.
0: We have time for one more if you'd like to share it.
1: Yeah, I mean, (laughs) you know, like you said, Scott, I I could keep going. So, yeah, let me um, just pick one that's maybe from the um, Organizations That Live section, and, you know, that's the one that that talks about leadership and decision-making and organizational design. I can't remember in our conversation four years ago if we talked much about hierarchies and networks but you know I've really come to see those as the kind of yin and yang of social cohesion so you know a network is this kind of more horizontal group where everybody shares authority and a hierarchy is where there's levels of authority that, that all direct to a top decision maker and so I have two patterns that are kind of reflective of how to make each one of those things optimal And so there's consensual hierarchies, and that talks about making sure that if we do delegate authority and and have kind of, you know, people who are in charge of decisions, that the, the size, the total size of that hierarchy is never larger than it has to be, and that it's never so large that the people at the bottom of the hierarchy can't talk to the people at the top and don't know them. So, you know, probably 150, 200 people max that that leadership at the top is consistently rotating so nobody is holding on to power and that they are subject to being removed if the people at the bottom think they're not using that power wisely. Right? So th- those are all different ways to take our existing hierarchies, of which there are many, and maybe make them a little bit more equitable. And then the flip side of that is uh, what I call nurtured networks. And so that's for our groups that are more kind of democratic and non-hierarchical that we design those intentionally and don't just kind of let them be whatever they are. You know, I was giving a talk about the book in Berkeley last week as part of a book tour I was on. And there was someone who was saying, you know, I live in this collective house and supposedly we all make decisions by consensus. But the truth is, is that the, there's this person who's been there a really long time and they're always dominating the conversation and they always end up, you know, deciding what happens even if the rest of us don't like it. That's a perfect example of a network that is not being nurtured that where there's all these kind of uncomfortable power dynamics at play that because the group hasn't been intentional about designing it or calling out the power dynamics of designing the right systems for accountability and trust that it's actually become a toxic network and and unfortunately that that happens almost as much as toxic hierarchies and so by you know looking at both of these patterns and and probably combining them cuz no I don't think any organization is, is a pure network or a pure hierarchy. So learning how to, how to take this yin element and yang element and skillfully put them together in, in any given organization in a way that allows it to be its highest potential, that's pretty fundamental to at least my understanding of uh, how this works in organizations.
0: And points to a conversation I just had the other day about power structures within anarchistic collectives. Is that my experience with them very rarely is it actually completely flat, but rather it's a very short hierarchy, maybe one or two levels high, that then continues to rotate leadership. But that the big piece of the conversation is about its consent of power, that people are making choices around their willing participation within that kind of power sharing structure.
1: Yep. Exactly, exactly. And, and I think sometimes, especially in the more idealistic among us, have this kind of allergy to hierarchy, right? We want to abolish any form of authority. And, and the truth is, that's just not how people work. That's not how groups work. And so personally, I feel like it's okay, like you said, as long as we consent to it, as long as we've created enough trust within the group, such that I feel okay delegating a decision about, you know, budget or where to host this event to you because I believe in you and I trust you. And next time around, I'll be that person in charge. And, and if we can get to that point in all of our groups, you know, I, I think we'll really be cooking.
0: And one last question before I get to your final thoughts Will you be doing an East Coast book tour?
1: Yeah, I will. And, and I'm glad you uh, asked. So at this point, I, I have on the books a couple mini tours. So I'll be in New York uh, and in the New York area towards the end of August, and then I'll be back in New England doing a few things in Maine and New Hampshire in October, um, I think it's the third week of October. All of my dates are are on my website, adambrock.me, and so anybody interested can always go on there and, and check to see where I'm going to be and when. I would love to, to come out a little bit closer to your neck of the woods, uh, Scott, Mid-Atlantic and, and Pennsylvania area. I don't have anything on the calendar at this point, but you know maybe that's something you and I can talk about offline later. That's
0: perfect. There are a few places that immediately come to mind. As always, with every conversation we've had over the last four and a half, five years since we were first in touch back in the early days of this show, both on the air and off, I'm always amazed by the amount of information that you bring to the table, and how much we can cover in such a short amount of time and i really thank you for taking this time to join me today and as i always like to end every conversation do you have any final thoughts for the listeners
1: i guess what i will say is just that i I hope that anybody listening to this and inspired by our conversation today takes a look into the the potential of pattern languages for engaging and, and optimizing their own work in social change or ecological change. Um, and whether you do that through my book or David Holmgren's book or any of the other books out there or just through your own work, I would encourage you and invite you to try playing with these patterns and, and taking the, the things that you've learned in your journey and, and putting them into pattern form to clarify your own thinking as well as uh, maybe help you share it with others, um, because I think it's a a pretty powerful tool that folks interested in permaculture are well-equipped to use.
0: Well, thank you for that, and thank you for joining me today, Adam. Yeah, thank you, Scott. It's been my pleasure. And that was Adam Brock. You can find out more about him and his book, including upcoming events, at adambrock.me and by the link in the show notes. As I mentioned in the conversation with Adam, I find that pattern languages fill the space between our applicable theory, which for me is the prime directive, ethics, and principles of permaculture, and the way that we put those ideas into action with our techniques and technologies. In a permaculture framework, to paraphrase and reframe the originator of the idea of a pattern language's definitions, Christopher Alexander, a pattern is a careful description of a perennial solution to a recurring problem within a given context whether in the landscape, our community, or our physical or invisible structures, that describes ways to bring life to the problem. Each pattern describes a problem that occurs over and over again in our environment, and then provides a core solution to that problem, in such a way that you can use the solution a million times over, without ever doing it in the exact same way twice. You've probably heard someone say, it depends, in answer to a permaculture question. And the solution that arises from problems is part of why. In permacultures we use systems thinking to look from the top down. We're designing to a specific place and particular set of circumstances. We're designing from patterns to details, which is another reason why I like this fit of a pattern language in our work of permaculture because we can move from that pattern to a pattern language, which is a network of patterns that call upon one another. With patterns helping us remember insights and knowledge about design that can be used in combination to create sustainable solutions. To try and extend these definitions a bit further to permaculture, the patterns and language simplify the process of applying the principles. As I just mentioned, that idea of going from patterns to details fits pretty well with this, that the patterns of a pattern language provide a list of problems and generalized solutions. By picking a series of interrelated patterns that fit our situation, we create a language that results in an answer to a question that is specific to our site or community. As a brief example of a pattern that descends from our principles, I'd like to look at Principle 2, Catch and Store Energy, and Principle 5, Use and Value Natural Resources and Services. From those two principles, we can ask a question and start to describe a pattern. So. What is a natural resource we want to catch and store? One that comes to mind is water. Why is water on a site a perpetual problem? Because water is vital to life. We need it for our plants, animals, and ourselves. From there, what's a possible solution for this pattern description that we can apply broadly to water in the landscape? One that I use frequently in my own practice is slow it, spread it, sink it. So by using those principles, asking a few questions, we have a very simple pattern, which is catch and store water. Water is vital for life. We need it for plants, animals, and ourselves. A solution is to slow, spread, and sink water. From there, what are some possible techniques for this solution? Rain barrels, dig swales, build up Hugo culture, or improve the soil. Which one or ones we use depends on our design goals and what we need that water for, yet each one, whichever one we might use depending on where we are, still meets the ideas set out in the pattern, and each is a way to slow, spread, and sink water. We could take each of those techniques, depending on how far you want to build this out, and have a pattern and solution that tells us how and where to use them. Networking those together, we could build a water-harvesting-specific pattern language As a subset of a broad permaculture pattern language. As I hope you can see, patterns and a pattern language are a way we can build up and extend the myriad of ideas and practices in permaculture in a codified way that simplifies our design work and lets us focus on specific aspects of the process. In a way, we can spend the time to create a language now and continue to update it and improve it as we learn more so that we can speed up our process later when we're actually engaged in design, and make it easier to share and explain these ideas to clients or students. Do this quick introduction and the conversation with Adam make sense? Can you see using this kind of patterning and a pattern language in your own work? Will you be picking up a copy of Change Here Now to get a better understanding of these ideas and how to apply them? Let me know. Leave a comment in the show notes or get in touch. Call 717-827-6266, email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com or write The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dolphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. If you'd like to help the show out, if you enjoyed this episode or any in the archives, leave a review for the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, or wherever you hear us. It really helps. Also be sure to like the show on Facebook or follow me on Instagram or Twitter. From here, the next episode, out for Patreon supporters on August 27th, and for general release on August 30th, is Holistic Goat Care with Geonocles Caldwell. Until the next time, spend each day creating the world you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.